Selected verses from Job chapter 4 and 5. Eliphaz's first response to Job. Then Eliphaz the Tamanite replied to Job, Will you be patient and let me say a word? For who could keep from speaking out? In the past you have encountered many people. You have strengthened those who were weak. Your words have supported those who were falling. You encourage those give you hope. Stop and think. Did the innocent die? When had the upright been destroyed? My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. A breath from God destroys the lioness will be scattered. The truth was given to me in secret, as though whispered in my ear. It came to me in a disturbing vision at night, when people are in deep sleep. Fear gripped me, and my bones trembled. A spirit swept past my face, and my hair stood on end. God does not trust his own angels and has charged his messengers with foolishness, how much less will he trust people made of clay? They are made of dust, crushed as easily as a moth. Surely resent they are alive the fool, and jealousy kills the simple. I have seen that fools may be successful for a moment, but then comes sudden disaster. Their children evil does not spring from the soil, and trouble does not sprout from the earth. People are born for trouble as readily as sparks fly up from the fire. If I were you, I would go to God and present He my gives prosperity to the poor and protects those who suffer. He traps the wise in their cleverness, so their cunning schemes are thwarted. He rescues the poor from the cutting words of the strong and rescues them from the clutches of the, the power of the sword in time of war. You will be safe from slander and have no fear when destruction comes. You will laugh at destruction and famine. Wild animals will not terrify Nothing will be you. missing. You will have many children. Your descendants will be as plentiful as grass. You will go to the grave at a ripe old age, like a sheaf of grain harvested in the proper time. We have studied life and found all this to be true. Listen to my counsel and apply it to yourself. Welcome back to our study of Job. I'm Ian, and this is a Sailor Time to Pause podcast from Plexus Salvation Army, an online church in the UK. I will stop and breathe in your presence, just breathe, just breathe. Arguments between siblings can be some of the meanest you might encounter. When brothers and sisters get going, it can quickly become nasty. And I'm not talking about the sort of constant low-level bickering that might take place in the backseat of a car on a long journey, though I'm sure that many parents will testify that such arguments can be very draining. But I'm talking about when something really flares up. It doesn't even have to be over a matter of any great significance. In fact, often an argument may start over something entirely insignificant, but whatever it may be that gets the argument going, It doesn't take long before the voices start to get louder and the faces start to get redder and soon the cry of, you're not my dad, it's none of your business, goes up. Tempers have started to flare and the shouting is well and truly underway. And what's being shouted has nothing to do with what started the argument. Occasionally they reach a crescendo and one storms out slamming a door behind them with the one still in the room claiming victory. But occasionally, too, they end because one of the siblings goes too far and says something incredibly hurtful. Growing up, I had many such arguments with my sister. Sometimes it was me and sometimes it was her that used the nuclear option and went too far and said the hurtful thing. But whether it was me or her, our defence was always the same. 
But it was true. And that's why arguments between siblings can be some of the meanest. Brothers and sisters know each other's weaknesses. When their arguments degenerate, they don't end with nasty name-calling and insults, even though they may pass through those stages en route. When they degenerate, they end up with truth-telling. Home truths that really do hit home and pierce like a knife. Truths that have been shared at other karma times in the context of a safe and loving relationship get brought up. Truths that were shared for support in moments of felt weakness are now weaponized. And when truth is used in that way, the pain is keen and the wounds run deep. It's for having argued with my sister in such ways that I learned the importance of apologising when I'm wrong and the importance of accepting the apologies of others when they're offered. But it was true was never good enough justification. But it was true never meant that an apology would be unnecessary. Just because something is true is not good enough reason for it to be said at that moment. Just because something is true is not good enough reason for it to be said in that place. Just because something is true is not good enough reason for it to be said in that manner. The matter of truth is of utmost importance for the follower of Jesus Christ. We're sinful people and we live in a fallen world and that's why Jesus came. It's why he had to come. This is uncomfortable to be reminded of, but it is truth. But sometimes the church becomes obsessed by truth, blinkered to all else, and sometimes we declare truth, forgetting what we should have learned as children. That just because something is true is not good enough reason for it to be said then and there and in that way. I have a good friend who sadly lived in an abusive relationship. She suffered for years married to a man who thought it was acceptable to physically assault his wife and who systematically demeaned her and emotionally dominated her. She managed to keep it quiet for years, but finally enough was enough and she knew that she needed to leave for her own sake and for the sake of her child. She was physically broken and could bear his mental torment no more. And she was increasingly concerned that her daughter would think such behavior was normal when she became old enough to have a serious relationship herself and marry. And so, after years of suffering, she left her husband and instructed her solicitors to sue for divorce. And when she did, she says that her church turned on her. She sought advice from her minister who simply said, God hates divorce. He then systematically pointed out to her some passage of scripture to support his statement. She left that church soon after, never to return. And she left feeling utterly condemned and rejected. Now, I confess that I can almost see where her minister was coming from, for I believe that God would want us to live in a world where divorce did not happen, where it didn't even exist. But I believe that this is because he wants us to live in a world where divorce is unnecessary. I believe God hates divorce because he hates the reasons for divorce, not because he hates the act itself, and certainly not because he hates the people who have been through one. I believe that my friend's minister spoke the truth when he said that God hates divorce, but just because it was true was not good enough reason for it to be said at that moment. Just because it was true was not good enough reason for it to be said of that situation. And just because it was true was not good enough reason for it to be said in the manner that he did. And of course, the mistakes that are made in speaking truth are not confined solely to discussion of divorce. Part of the church's mission is to speak out against all forms of social injustice and against sin. 
We exist to declare the best way of living, to demonstrate the life that God intended for us all to have. Yet too often when we've tried to do just that, we come across as angry, condescending and judgmental, an out-of-touch body of arrogant Puritans, a collection of goody-two-shoes trying to impose an outdated and irrelevant moral code onto others. When the church has spoken out about the problems we face in our society and how we ought to live, too often we've left people hurting in our wake. The truth we seek to speak is eclipsed by our bad timing, our inadequate situational awareness, our poor tone and our failure to express ourselves fully. And in consequence, the beautiful truth we're trying to share ends up just looking ugly. We see this misplaced truth telling in today's reading from Job. We're well aware of the suffering that Job has and is enduring and his friend has come to sit with him. But when his friend finally speaks, his words sound harsh. He utters home truths rather than solace, criticism rather than succour, theology rather than consolation. Eliphaz chooses to confront Job rather than to comfort him. Is that what you would want from a friend? Is that how you would think God would have wanted Eliphaz to speak? When Eliphaz speaks, what he says is true, but that doesn't mean that what he said was right. He speaks unkindly, judgmentally and lacking compassion, which is why many chapters later, when God chooses to speak, his response to Eliphaz is, I'm angry with you for you've not spoken accurately about me. God's response can be hard to understand, for what Eliphaz says is true. Painful as it is to admit, for we may not like the timing of his words, nor the man he says them, his theological analysis still has merit. God does punish wickedness and transgression, and sometimes that comes immediately. Think of stories like that of Uzzah being struck down for stabilising the Ark of the Covenant. Or in New Testament times, think of the story of Ananias and Sapphira, both of whom die. If we were to take any one part of what Eliphaz says, we'd struggle to find something wrong. And yet when we view it in its totality, we find that it's misplaced. He says there's no such thing as truly good people and that none of us deserve the good things that happen to us. Can we deny that? If we were to look at life's tragedies as cause and effect, then all of us have done more than enough bad things in our lives to bring endless catastrophe upon ourselves as a result. God is pure, but we are not. There's undeniable truth in the words of Aliphaz if we take his statements one by one. Indeed, he's even quoted by the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Corinthian church. But the overall impression of God given by Eliphaz is wrong. For it makes the Lord appear as a monster as one who waits for man to fall so that he can crush them with his justice and wrath. In Eliphaz's speech to Job, truth is built upon truth, is built upon truth, upon truth, and yet the theology that it produces is not correct, for Eliphaz has created a heartless theology. So no wonder, therefore, that God says to him, I am angry with you, for you've not spoken rightly about me. Truth matters. But as the Apostle Paul wrote, followers of Jesus must always speak the truth in love. The Christian's demeanour is just as important as his or her words. Graciousness is at the very heart of the Christian life. I've said it before, but just because something is true is not good enough reason for it to be said. Or at least it's not good enough reason for it to be said whenever, wherever and however. God cares about more than just the words you say. He also cares about how you say those words. It's not enough to always speak the truth. You must always speak the truth in love. 
Truth can be a powerful instrument, a tool that can be wielded just like a surgeon's knife. It can be guided well to bless and bring healing, but it can also be crudely applied to wound, to cripple, to damage and even to destroy. Tim Keller put it this way, truth without love is imperious self-righteousness. Truth without love is self-centered and arrogant. It hurts, manipulates and cuts others down in order to elevate the speaker. As important as truth is, we often need truth and more. Truth alone is insufficient. Truth is but one element of the armor of God for the equipping of the church. If it's going to be put to God's service, it must also be paired with other virtues like righteousness and peace. When it comes to how you speak, God will hold you to a greater standard than simply truth. Notwithstanding the ninth commandment that you should not bear false witness, the standard he will hold you to is not whether what you say is true, but also by whether it was loving, gentle and kind. Did it show evidence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Informing the church, God chose to create a unique, set-apart people whose lives are based on truth, but with a culture marked by the same genuine kind of love found in Jesus. Motivated by the truth of the gospel, that Jesus, the Good Shepherd, laid down his life for us, this in turn empowers us to love one another by laying down our lives in the way we love and serve others. At times, the church can become infatuated with truth. Do you believe X? Do you believe Y? What does God say about A or B or C? They're important questions and throughout history the church has wrestled long and hard with truths and paradoxes to form its established belief. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which we'll hear sung at the end of today's podcast, tells us that truth will come to an end, words will be stilled and knowledge will pass away. At the culmination of history, only three things will remain, faith, hope and love, and of those, the greatest is love. When instructing his disciples, Jesus didn't tell them that he wanted the mark of community to be the orthodoxy of their theology, or the correctness of their preaching, or even the purity of their membership. They were to be known by their love, their love for each other and their love for the world. Navigating the moral dilemmas of today's world is not easy. What should we believe? What does God say about this or that? They're important questions upon which we need to form answers. How should we interact with those of other faiths? How can we be a people of faith in an increasingly secular world? What about war or intensive animal farming or genetic modification or embryonic stem cell treatment? What about poverty? What does the Bible say about artificial intelligence, cyborgism and researching to plant human consciousness into machines? What about abortion? What about euthanasia? Truth is important. But we must also recognise that these questions do not simply stand alone as philosophical curiosities. These questions each come attached to real people with real heartbeats. Too often the church has answered these questions like Eliphaz. Truth built upon truth upon truth, but creating a rigid, heartless theology. I wonder how God will respond to his church for those times. Will he answer to us as he did Eliphaz? Listen just now as I close to the words of St. Paul. If I had the gift of all prophecy and all truth, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could even move mountains but didn't love others, 
I would be nothing. Three things only will last forever. Faith, hope and love. And the greatest of these is love. If I have
Hello, this has been Sailor Time to Pause, a podcast from Plexus Salvation Army, an online church in the UK. I'm Ian. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Sam. If you've enjoyed journeying with us over these last few weeks, join us every Monday. Or any day that works for you. To spend time together, taking time out to pause, catch our breath, draw near to God and refresh our spirits. We share Bible teachings, reflections on songs we're listening to, and on what's going on in the world around us. As well as this, on the last day of the month, we look back and reflect, share any thoughts from our listener community, and ask what we can take from it into our daily living. What we call our personal So What's for the month. Join us, making us part of your regular routine, spending a few minutes to listen to what God might be saying to you. Find us on your favourite podcast streaming service, on Facebook or YouTube by searching for Selah. That's S-E-L-A-H. Time to pause.